0: I enjoy because of men like young me, grandfather, one of the ancestors. I need to find my space, to find my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin type. But my skin fits me just right. They're all there, my ancestral throne, for I am, we are, lifetime's infinite, billion strong. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mind Your Margins, a podcast that seeks to foster a space where it's humanly possible to make humanity possible. My name is Michelle Myers, and I will be trying my best to help us navigate through topics about marginalized identities, and prioritizing the perspectives of people who may feel invisible, or silenced, or ignored, or erased. Also, I want to acknowledge that these discussions are difficult but I'm hoping that through these conversations, we can claim space for understanding and compassion. At this time, I want to thank everyone who expressed their condolences about my father's passing in May. I also want to thank everyone for their understanding about me needing to take a break from making episodes for this podcast. I didn't make an announcement about needing to take a break, but I'm grateful I just went ahead and made that space for myself. Honestly, the past few months have been very, very difficult for me. And I'm not saying that with any intent of a pity grab. I know that I'm not the only person in the world who has lost their parents, and I know that this would have been an eventuality, and I would have had to deal with it at some point, but the loss of my parents has been traumatizing for me in the sense of witnessing their physical decline and losing them both way too soon or at least that's what I believe. They died young, in my opinion. Anyway, since my mother's death over four years ago, and now my father's death only a few months past, I feel like I've had an opportunity to become intimately familiar with grief and able to deeply reflect on the grieving process. I feel like grief is still an aspect of human experience that we don't discuss enough. So I think sometime in a future episode, I'm not exactly sure when, but I want to make space for talking about grief, about my grief, and what I'm learning from it. And while discussing and sharing all that, I hope that it'll be a cathartic and healing experience for me and whoever may listen to that episode. So I hope you'll join me for that whenever I'm able to prepare for it. But before I get into today's topic, as I do at the beginning of every episode, I'm going to share a land acknowledgement statement. I call out to the ancestors of the native peoples of this land in the hopes that by honoring them, I also honor my mother and my father, who are now both ancestors, and through them connect to my Korean ancestors and the land of my birth. So I hope you'll reflect on the words as I speak them. I acknowledge that the land on which I live and work are the ancestral lands of the Leni Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware continue to this day. I recognize that the place where I recorded this podcast also sits on the unceded homeland of the Leni Lenape people. I and my listeners take this opportunity to honor the original caretakers of this land, and recognize the histories of land theft, violence, erasure, and oppression that has brought ourselves here. We are grateful to be guests in these lands and commit to solidarity and the struggle for Indigenous sovereignty. This land acknowledgment reminds us of our connections and indebtedness to the Indigenous people of New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Saying their names and learning their histories call their spirits to life. Thank you for listening to that land acknowledgement statement. At this time in previous podcasts, I have encouraged people listening to seek out information about the impact that the topic I plan to discuss has on Native communities. Today my approach will be a bit different in the sense that I'll be including discussion about Native people, specifically Native women from multiple regions within the U.S., from the contiguous states to Alaska, Hawaii, and the Pacific Islands later in my discussion today, rather than concentrating it here right after the land acknowledgement statement. If I'm going to be honest with you, and as I've said in previous episodes, I intend to be as honest as possible about my feelings and thoughts when I discuss these topics. I wasn't sure if I was mentally and emotionally ready to give attention and energy to this podcast. But at the time that I'm recording this, we are about 50-something days away from the midterm elections, and I felt a sense of urgency about the situation regarding women's basic rights to reproductive health care here in the United States. So I decided that I needed to talk about my concerns and do whatever I can to raise people's awareness. What I say in this podcast are just my thoughts, and they may not be completely organized, but I just felt like I needed to share them however they come out. I've been watching very closely to how people have been responding through words and actions to the Supreme Court's Daub decision to reverse Roe v. Wade. And I feel like we all saw this coming, I think. I mean, we witnessed how conservative politicians and the previous administration orchestrated the filling of Supreme Court vacancies, and now with this new book that's just out, called Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice by David Enrich, who is the business investigations editor at the New York Times, and whose book is about the Trump administration's collusion with the Jones Day law firm, we can begin to understand just how profoundly pervasive these judicial appointments are in furthering the Christian conservative political agenda, particularly about women's reproductive health issues and how these politically motivated judicial appointments are jeopardizing the very delicate checks and balances that we have in place within our particular democratic government system. And that's a point I want to emphasize in this episode. That what we're seeing at the federal level from the Senate and the Supreme Court to the state level with judicial rulings extending abortion bans in states such as Texas and West Virginia. And then with all the campaign ads and the opposition against adding ballot measures on abortion rights in Kansas and Michigan, all of this indicated the beginnings of a larger fight over not only legalized abortion, but also women's rights to basic health care, such as contraception and prenatal care and family planning. And if I said that too fast, I'm going to say it again. The intent to ban legalized abortion and medical access for legalized abortion at the state and federal levels won't just stop there. This is part of a much larger movement to ban women's rights to basic reproductive health care, essentially taking control of women's bodies in a way that puts our bodies and our very lives in danger. Trump-era judicial appointees had already been striking down a woman's rights to insurance coverage for contraception, and family planning clinics have been closing all over the country, in particular taking healthcare access away and detrimentally impacting poor women. And when I say poor women, I do mean to include poor white women as well as poor women of color. And I'll talk more about race and class regarding these issues in a few moments. As I've been reading and watching reports about how the Supreme Court's decision to roll back Roe versus Wade has galvanized women to protest and mobilize to protect women's right to choose what to do with their own bodies, I've been hopeful about women unifying across race, culture, ethnicity, religious beliefs, and socioeconomic backgrounds about issues that we all have a vested interest in as women. And with the increase in women registering to vote since the Dobbs decision, I've been hopeful that this kind of energy is jumpstarting a new era for the women's rights movement. And by and large, I'm still hopeful. But as the midterm elections draw closer, I'm also getting a bit concerned that maybe some of us are feeling comfortable that we can win, and we might ease back on the sense of urgency and momentum we've built over the summer. With many news outlets reporting that about 61%, or 6 out of 10 Americans support legalizing abortion. These statistics largely pulled from data published by the Pew Research Center based on a survey they conducted in March of 2022. Based on this data, some people might feel this is favorable enough and then will decide not to go out to vote in the midterm elections after all. And with other seemingly good news pat-on-the-back reporting, such as a ballot measure win to protect abortion rights in Kansas, traditionally a staunchly conservative state, And getting a ballot measure added in the Michigan primary so that voters can decide on extending legal protections for women's reproductive freedoms, as well as striking down a 1931 abortion ban. All of this seems to indicate that those of us who support legalized abortion and support women having the basic right to receive safe and professional health care when it comes to our reproductive decisions and needs, maybe some of us think we don't have anything to worry about. And so some of us may relax and not go out to vote. Or maybe not encourage others to vote. Or maybe not pay attention to the lead-up to the midterm elections altogether, thinking we're all good. But with 50-something days left until the midterm elections, I am concerned. I'm concerned because I've also been paying attention to what the Republicans are saying and doing. And I'm concerned that if we don't stay vigilant, that they will sneak up and steal our reproductive health care rights out from underneath our noses. I use the words sneak up intentionally because ever since the widespread backlash and protests after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, some Republicans running for Senate and governor positions have backtracked on their previously adamant support of abortion bans and have scrubbed their websites of language which would expose their position. Politicians such as Blake Masters in Arizona, Tom Barrett in Michigan, And Barb Kirkmeyer in Colorado have taken out declarative language about being quote-unquote 100% pro-life off of their websites. And some Republican candidates, such as Tiffany Smiley, have even suggested that they wouldn't support a federal ban on abortion despite being pro-life. Or other candidates who say they wouldn't support an abortion ban that didn't include exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother, such as Masters had. But as the Planned Parenthood Action Fund has warned... This de-emphasis on abortion bans and quote-unquote right-to-life or quote-unquote pro-life rhetoric within the past few months is just a way to make these Republican candidates seem moderate to voters who may be undecided. In other words, these candidates are intentionally misleading the public about their position. They are lying and trying to trick people who might be coming to their campaign website late as undecided voters. These politicians want to hide their true stance on abortion and women's reproductive freedoms and hopefully steal their votes, particularly if these potential voters believe abortion should remain legal. And if these politicians do get voted into office, we should be wary that they will exercise their full power and effort to block women's health care access and reproductive freedoms, thus putting women's lives at risk. We also have to be aware that Republicans' concerted efforts to de-emphasize their position on abortion are also being furthered by diversionary tactics to distract us so that we feel comfortable, get complacent, and relax our efforts to get out the vote. They would happily take a win if they could prevent us from coming out to vote or trick us into voting on another issue, like if they can flip the script to inflation. Or immigration or taxes or some other contentious issue, then they hope people will forget about voting to protect legalized abortion. I feel like that's exactly what DeSantis did this past week when he kidnapped about 50 migrants from Venezuela who were in Texas, not in Florida, and transported them to Martha's Vineyard. He's trying to shift the focus to criminalizing and dehumanizing migrants and refugees and asylum seekers his actions to use these people for his own manipulative purposes, these families and children and elders. He so clearly exposed how reprehensible and unconscionable and cruel he is. It just goes to show the immoral, unethical, and corrupt lengths some of these Republicans will go to to win their political races at all costs, no matter who they hurt or traumatize. And if they're willing to devalue human lives to this extent just to win, Then when they're in office, we have to assume they will do whatever they can to uphold or block legislation with the intent to further their own agenda on abortion and reproductive health care access. Republicans and Christian conservatives have relentlessly sought these bans and reversals for the past 49 years. So these candidates are not going to give up so easily when their own constituents and lobbyists have pushed so hard to back them. But the Republicans are going to do what they're going to do. I don't see how there's any way they're going to change. So I myself want to heed my own warning and not get too distracted by this. I do want to talk about immigration issues and policies in a future episode. But right now I want to try to maintain my focus. What I'm concerned about are women not supporting other women who are in fact traumatizing other women. What I'm concerned about is how women who support the Republican agenda for whatever reasons, whether they identify as politically conservative or religiously motivated or adamantly pro-life, I'm concerned about how they are dehumanizing not only other women, but also themselves. You know, honestly, I don't know how to enter into this discussion in a productive way. And when I say that, I mean in a way that women who oppose legalized abortion will be receptive to. I've been thinking about it and thinking about it, and I don't know what words there are to get them to see that those of us who want to protect abortion rights are fighting for their rights too. And I wonder if there's something inadequate or ineffective about the language we're using that's causing this disconnect, that by saying, quote unquote, right to choose or quote unquote, pro-choice, that that language lends itself to being twisted and misinterpreted by pro-life women as we don't care about unborn children, or that we're willing to kill unborn children for our own selfish reasons, and that we want the medical industry and the government to sanction it. Even though that's not what we're saying, that's how it's interpreted by some pro-life women. And it doesn't help that they hear men in the Republican Party mocking us and saying things like, quote, my body, my choice is ridiculous nonsense, end quote, which is what Doug Mastriano said while campaigning to be governor of Pennsylvania. Why can't some women hear what sexist, condescending bullshit this is? And then, of course, anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers co-opted the phrase to diminish it even further. And then it becomes a very triggering topic for all involved in a way that hinders any meaningful communication and understanding. So how can we overcome a fundamental flaw in the language we're using to unite on an issue that affects all women? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I do know this. I'm fighting for all of my sisters to have the right to make medical decisions related to their bodies and to have access to safe and professional healthcare services so that they will recover from and survive their medical decision. Because that's how I look at this. I'm doing this for my sister survivors and you are a sister survivor whether you recognize it or not. Whether you recognize it or not, Sometime in your life, you have been harassed, dismissed, and belittled as a woman. At least one in four women in the United States has been sexually assaulted. At least every 15 seconds, a woman is beaten through domestic violence in the United States. Many women have experienced being blamed for being sexually assaulted or beaten by someone who outright said or suggested that she, quote unquote, must have asked for it. In addition to all of these oppressive and traumatizing experiences, if you are someone who identifies as a person who can give birth to children, I think that sometimes it's easy for us in 2022 to forget that carrying and giving birth to children historically has been a common way a woman could die. Or maybe some of us don't know this. I think just like with so much other information that's been scrubbed and erased from history, some historical facts are kept from us so that certain people can exert their power over us. So I'm hoping that talking about this will illuminate the point I'm trying to make about our history as women struggling for our collective rights in the United States. So I want to start by pointing out that it's really only been since the 1940s that childbirth in developed countries has come to be regarded as a quote-unquote, safe or routine procedure. But the fact is that women died while being pregnant or giving birth quite frequently. And this was true across race, class, religious beliefs, and cultural practices. Before modern medicine, most women, regardless of background, were at risk of dying while giving childbirth. But with the institutionalization of medicine, childbirth became safer mainly for women who had the means and access to health care. So then gaps have been developing up to this day, which show inequities between women who could afford health care and had access to it near their homes and often chose to give birth in a hospital where interventions were available if something went wrong, while poor women who did not have access to prenatal care or maternal health care and who often had to travel long distances to get to the closest hospital. Because of all this, they often had a greater risk of something going wrong with their own health and the baby's health during pregnancy and childbirth. Of course, sadly, poor women are more likely to die in childbirth. Then if the effects of racism are factored in, even more inequities can be seen in the maternal mortality rate. I bring this up because I think if we're lucky enough to have health insurance or have access to healthcare, or if we're wealthy and can afford healthcare, whether we have insurance or not, sometimes we take for granted that all women in the United States have the same access to healthcare when they become pregnant. But this is not true. Right now, the maternal mortality rate, the number of women who die in childbirth in the United States is higher than in any other developed countries to the point that it's become a crisis. In fact, according to the World Health Organization, as well as the Wilson Center, a nonpartisan and independent research policy forum, although global maternal mortality rates have decreased 43% since the 1990s, The United States is the only developed country where maternal mortality rates have actually gone up. Any data that I reference in today's episode, mee will include in the episode description for the Mind Your Margins podcast. And when we look at the data, we should be able to see and understand that within the alarming maternal mortality rate in the United States, there are clear equity gaps which can be attributed to racism and classism. So women of color, regardless of socioeconomic status, poor white women and poor women of color have higher rates of dying in childbirth in the United States than white women, and in particular, white women who have access to healthcare or wealthy white women who can afford healthcare and or have health care insurance. I was recently looking at data of maternal mortality rates in the United States presented by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization focusing on national health issues. And the data shows that Black women are over three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. It also reveals that American Indian and Alaska Native women are over two times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And then when it comes to pregnancy risk factors, the data by the Kaiser Family Foundation indicates that premature births and lower birth weights Which can lead to infant mortality are higher for Black women, for American Indian and Alaska Native women, and for Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander women than for white women. I recently read a heartbreaking article in the Philadelphia Inquirer titled, When the Water Breaks, which examines the maternal mortality crisis in the United States and traces it back to Philadelphia which had some of America's first delivery wards and how pregnant black women not only received unequal treatment, but were exploited, brutalized, and dehumanized. And as I've discussed before in a previous episode, the United States government has violated the reproductive freedoms of native and Latin women when they unknowingly performed hysterectomies on them in the 1970s, effectively enacting a modern form of genocide. There were also incidents of forced hysterectomies performed on Latin women who were refugees and asylum seekers in detainment centers during the Trump administration. I could go on and on about the data, but I wanna stop here and say this. I don't mean to single out white women to make them feel bad or guilty. That's not my intent or goal because I recognize that poor white women are also disproportionately affected by these reproductive health care issues due to the closing of family planning clinics, as well as hospitals, particularly in rural areas. I also realize it's not just white women who oppose abortion rights. There are women of color who oppose it as well. For example, Stacey Abrams, who is running for governor of Georgia and is someone I respect and admire, has been very honest about how she once was against legalized abortion, in large part due to her religious background as a Methodist Black woman from the South. And she recognizes that many of her constituents in Georgia may personally see abortion as morally wrong, as she once did, particularly Black voters in rural areas, but also Asian Americans and Latin voters too. She's recently been sharing her story about her own shift in perspective about abortion. She has explained how, during her teenage years, when a friend was considering an abortion, she wasn't supportive of her. She wasn't there for her as a friend, but instead she judged her. Stacy Abrams now admits how much she regrets that because her friend was struggling with, quote, the very real challenges of incest and pregnancy, poverty and destitution, end quote. Young will share the link to the New York Times interview with Stacey Abrams on the episode page. But now Stacey Abrams says that through her own personal evolution, she recognizes that women have very complicated reasons for wanting and needing an abortion. And while she feels an abortion is a personal choice that she most likely wouldn't make, she asserts that she's not going to deny another woman the right to make a different choice. I think it's very courageous for Stacey Abrams to be talking about this and to be sending this message. And I wish more women would listen to her, not just women in Georgia, but all over the United States. Because what I really wish in the course of having these conversations is that we as women start to realize how this issue goes far beyond abortion. It's going to determine other basic rights when it comes to women's health care that could one day affect any of us and our children that by voting our rights away, we're taking rights away from our own daughters. Our daughters will have less rights than us in this current political climate. I wish we as women could get that. I wish we would have compassion for our sister survivors rather than inflicting harm on them as they try to navigate a healthcare system that does not provide care or support for them if they can't afford it or don't have health insurance. It's about seeing these women as our mothers, sisters, aunts, and daughters, and saying, if my loved one needed this medical care for whatever reason, she deserves to not only receive it, but to get the best care possible. And if all these women who oppose abortion and reproductive health rights are thinking something like, quote, these pregnant women and girls have to accept the consequences of being pregnant by having sex, whether they chose to or were raped, end quote. What kind of sexist brainwashing have you gone through that you would hate your sister survivors like this? And then what does this say about how you see yourself? Do you see yourself so far above these women who are in need, who are hurting, that you think you'll never be in their shoes one day? That you'll never have to make these decisions? Or your daughter will never have to make these decisions? Who's going to stand up for you and protect you if you voted away all of your rights? I thought I would share a personal experience to further explain why this topic is important to me. What I'm about to share is not something I have ever shared publicly and actually it's something that really only my immediate family members and maybe a couple of very close friends know about. Back at the end of 2003 I found out I was pregnant. Young was five or six years old so this was my second pregnancy. At that time, I had no health insurance. Myung's father and I weren't married, so I wasn't covered under his health insurance through his job. We weren't married when I was pregnant with Myung, but because we weren't living together then, my income was so low that I qualified for state aid for prenatal care and hospital care when I gave birth to Myung as well as Wick after she was born. But with my second pregnancy, since I was living with Myung's father, even though we weren't married, his income disqualified me from receiving state aid. So I delayed going to the doctor about being pregnant. I really mainly was going by a missed period and a positive pregnancy test. Around 3 a.m. on January 3, 2003, I woke up with severe pain in my abdomen. Then for most of the early morning, I was vomiting and had diarrhea. I had eaten leftover pizza the night before, so I thought maybe I had food poisoning. My mom came over to help Myung go to school, and she stayed with me through the day. I couldn't hold anything down, not even water. I would drink it and then throw it right back up. I had a terrible pain in my stomach, and all I did was lay on the floor all day but I didn't want to go to the emergency room because I didn't have any health insurance. As the day went on, I felt weaker and weaker, but I thought it was because I wasn't able to hold anything in my stomach. By the time Young's father came home from work at around 5.30 p.m., I had lost all feeling in my fingers. I couldn't even move them, and then I had a strong feeling inside me that I was dying. I don't know how to describe it. It was this feeling that settled deep inside me, that told me I was dying, but I didn't tell Myung's father that at the time. What I said to him was, I can't feel my fingers. I think we have to call an ambulance. Then he tried to hold my hand, but my fingers were limp. So he called an ambulance and then he called my mom back so that she could watch Myung. When the EMTs came, I told him that I thought I had food poisoning from bad pizza I had eaten. And when they asked if there was anything else about my health they should know, I told them that I was pregnant but I hadn't been to a doctor yet. So they put me in the ambulance and Young's father was following us in his car. And while I was on the ambulance, one of the EMTs took my blood pressure. I heard her say under her breath, That can't be right. And she took my blood pressure again. After the second time, I heard her say to the driver, What's the ETA to the hospital? I don't remember what he said, but she responded, We need to get there faster than that. So he put on the sirens and very noticeably sped up. Later, Myung's father told me that the ambulance driver was running through red lights. And so he got scared what that meant, and he started to run through the red lights after them. Once I got to the emergency room, my my memory is a little more hazy for me to remember everything. But I know someone said my lips were blue, and an x-ray or MRI showed that I had a huge accumulation of blood in my abdomen. Then someone told me that I had had an ectopic rupture. So what had happened was that my pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy, which means that the fetus was not in my uterus. It had lodged in my right fallopian tube and the fetus had outgrown the tube to the point where my fallopian tube had burst and I was bleeding internally. So by that point, it was around 11 p.m. So I had been bleeding internally for about 17 hours. The hospital had to call in an emergency surgical team to operate on me right away, and I didn't get into the operating room until 11.30pm. The next morning when I woke up in the ICU, the doctors told me that if I had waited another half hour to come to the hospital, I would have died. They said I had lost so much blood, they needed to pump three units of blood inside me. But even after hearing all that, about how I had almost died, about how they had to remove my fallopian tube, about how they had to pump three units of blood, about how they had to pump three units of blood in me, the only question I asked the doctors was, "If I had gone to a doctor sooner, is there any way the baby would have been saved?" And the doctors told me there was no way my pregnancy would have been viable because it was an ectopic pregnancy. They told me my pregnancy would have needed to have been terminated no matter what for the very reason why I was there. Because an ectopic pregnancy, if not terminated, would have led to an ectopic rupture, putting the mother, me, at risk of dying. So this is the reason why I wanted to talk about this topic today. Because if the universe hadn't have decided for me... If I had had health insurance or the money to pay for my own medical care, I would have had to have an abortion for medical reasons and to save my own life. And I think about these abortion bans in states like Texas and I wonder if I would have gone to the hospital or even if I would have been able to get care if those abortion bans were in place in 2003. I mean, even though most of these current abortion bans make exceptions for ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages, they're trying to restrict inducing abortions even in these situations where it's medically necessary. And the language for these bans is so confusing that some doctors and hospitals are delaying or denying care for women in these situations because they fear the legal repercussions. I'll have young put some links on the episode page with more information about how abortion bans are impacting women who have ectopic pregnancies. So what do abortion bans mean for a woman with an ectopic pregnancy? That she has to wait until the pregnancy terminates on its own like mine did, and what's sometimes called a spontaneous abortion according to the medical terminology, and then hope someone can save her life before she bleeds to death? That's crazy. I would never wish on anyone to go through what I went through. And let me be clear about this. I don't know if I would be alive today if there had been a federal ban on abortions when I had my ectopic pregnancy and rupture. So ultimately... My experience has solidified for me the importance of women having the right to make their own decisions about their health, including their reproductive health such as pregnancy and whether or not they are able to carry fetus term for whatever reasons. And also the importance of having access to health care and health insurance as well as access to safe and professional medical facilities and services. I have compassion for my sister survivors who are agonizing over their current situation because I can put myself in their shoes and imagine how painful and traumatizing and scary it may be for them. And I'm asking you to have compassion too. To close out this episode... I want to share an excerpt from a commencement speech by Toni Morrison that she delivered in 1979 to students graduating from Barnard College, a women's liberal arts college. And if you don't know who Toni Morrison was, she was a Pulitzer and Nobel Prize-winning author of such amazing books as The Bluest Eye and Beloved. She passed away in 2019, and so we honor her memory through the sharing of this speech excerpt. And in it, she expresses the points that I'm trying to make so much more eloquently than I have. Like I've said, um, I've edited down some. Young will provide a link to the full speech online for anyone who wants to read it. It's called "Cinderella's Stepsisters. And again, it was delivered by Toni Morrison. Let me begin by taking you back a little, back before the days of college, to nursery school, probably, to a once upon a time you first heard or read, or I suspect even saw Cinderella. Because it is Cinderella that I want to talk about. Because it is Cinderella who causes me this feeling of urgency. What is unsettling about it is that the story is essentially the story of a household, a world, if you please, of women gathered together and held together in order to abuse another woman. There is, of course, a vague, rather absent father and a nick of time prince with a foot fetish, but neither has much personality. The real fireworks don't concern the men and do not take place among or between them. And there are the surrogate, quote unquote, mothers, of course, God and step who contribute both to Cinderella's grief and to her release and happiness. But it is her stepsisters who interest me. How crippling it must have been for those young girls to grow up with a mother to watch and imitate that mother in the enslaving of another girl. I am curious about their fortunes after the story ends. For contrary to recent adaptations, the stepsisters were not ugly, clumsy, stupid girls with outsized feet. The Grimm collection describes them as, quote, beautiful and fair in appearance, end quote. When we are introduced to them, they are beautiful, elegant women of status and clearly women of power. Having watched and participated in the dominion of another woman, Will they be any less cruel when it comes their turn to enslave other children or even when they are required to take care of their own mother? It is not a wholly medieval circumstance. It is quite a contemporary one if you think about it. Feminine power when directed at other women has historically been wielded in what has been described as a quote-unquote masculine manner. I am speaking now to a group of women who will be, if not already, in a position to do the very same thing. Whatever your background, rich or poor, whatever the history of education in your family, you will have both the economic and social status of the stepsisters. You will have their power. I want not to ask you, but to tell you, not to participate in the oppression of your sisters. Mothers who abuse their children are women, and another woman, not an agency, has to be willing to stay her hand. Mothers who set fire to the buses of children are women, and other women have to tell them to stay their hands. Women who stop the promotion of other women in careers are women, and other women must come to the victim's aid. Social welfare workers who humiliate their clients may be women, and other women colleagues have to deflect their action. I am alarmed by the violence that women do to each other, professional violence competitive violence, emotional violence. I'm alarmed by the willingness of women to enslave other women. You are the women who will take your place in the world where you decide, who shall flourish and who shall wither. You will make distinctions between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, while you can yourself determine which life is expendable and which is indispensable. Since you will have the power to do it, you may also be persuaded that you have the right to do it. As educated women, the distinction between the two is first order business. What I am suggesting is that we pay as much attention to our nurturing sensibilities as to our ambition. You are moving in the direction of freedom, and the function of freedom is to free somebody else. You are moving towards self-fulfillment, and the consequences of that fulfillment should be to discover that there is something just as important as you are, and that just as important thing may be Cinderella or your stepsister. In your rainbow journey toward the realization of personal goals, don't make choices based only on your security and your safety. Nothing is safe. That is not to say that anything ever was or that anything worth achieving ever should be. Things of value seldom are. It is not safe to have a child. It is not safe to challenge the status quo. It is not safe to choose work that has not been done before or to do old work in a new way. There will always be someone there to stop you. But in pursuing your highest ambitions, don't let your personal safety diminish the safety of your stepsister. In wielding the power that is deservedly yours, don't permit it to enslave your stepsisters. Let your might and your power emanate from that place in you that is nurturing and caring. Women's rights is not only an abstraction, a cause, it is also a personal affair. It is not only about us. It is about me and you, just the two of us. I leave you my love. And on that note, on Toni Morrison's insightful and almost prophetic words delivered over 40 years ago, I want to thank you for joining me today, for listening. I hope that what I've shared today will inspire and motivate you to uplift our sister survivors and to vote for freedoms that are part of our fundamental right to feel safe and protected. That you recognize and agree our basic right to health care as women includes all of our reproductive health care too. Let us stay the hand of others who seek to oppress us by voting them out of positions of power where they can impose their will on us and on our daughters. As Toni Morrison asserted, we quote, are moving in the direction of freedom and the function of freedom is to free somebody else, end quote. Thank you very much again. I'm grateful to you for spending this time with me and sharing space. I'm not really sure what the topic of the next episode of Mind Your Margins will be or when it will post. I'm really just going with the flow of the universe right now. My mental health is something I'm really trying to pay attention to because I can't really handle too much stress right now. But Young and I were thinking about doing a follow-up episode on this topic after the midterm elections. And I know that I didn't do an episode celebrating Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and sharing stories about the organizations and people who have inspired me as an Asian American woman. I still want to do that one at some point. But I'm also thinking about doing an episode on the immigration crisis and then also, as I said earlier, one on grief. So I don't know. We'll have to see. But if you'd like to contact Myung and me, you can reach out to us via email at mindyourmargins at gmail.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. One thing I haven't asked in any episodes yet is that you like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So Myung and I hope you'll do so as well as subscribe to our podcast so that you can be notified when a new episode is posted. Until we share space again, please be mindful of yourselves and mindful of others. Take good care.
1: I employed every other man like young join
0: me Grandfather one a million ancestors I need to find my space to find my face in this ancestral embrace that is skin tight but my skin fits me just right They're all there my ancestral throne for I am we are lifetime's infinite billion strong